Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have prayer to make sure we are in fellowship, ready to focus our attention on the teaching of the word this evening, get our attention off all those things that distract us and bother us and worry us and get us all... uh, uh, distracted facing the events of the upcoming weekend and the things that happened at work today and so we can focus on the Word. And if we need to use First John 1, 9, we'll do that. So let's bow our heads. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Father, the more we study your word, the more remarkable that we see that it is. And your infinite wisdom and in light of your omniscience, you devised a way to reveal yourself to us that is so remarkable, so intricate, that the more we read it, the more we study it, the more we learn that there is to learn, there is to study, and we never can seem to get to the bottom of it. And each time it's just impresses us with the depth and the magnificence of the way you have revealed yourself to us. And the fact that you have taken us through a process and progress of revelation, so that as we read from Genesis to Revelation, we see how you have gradually taught mankind different things about yourself and added one element upon another until we come to a full understanding of what you would have us to know. Now, fathers, we begin to look at this important doctrine in the Scripture related to the tabernacle. We pray that we can see the lessons that you have for us and that as we study these things, we might once again be impressed with the uh, uniqueness of who you are and your distinctiveness and that as you have revealed yourself in Scripture, this could not be a result of just human endeavor or human imagination. We pray that as we study, we'll be able to uh, integrate this with the things we've studied in other areas, and that God the Holy Spirit will take these things and help us to have a greater understanding and appreciation for uh, your rule over planet Earth and the divine viewpoint that we gain from Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says some interesting things about the law. Galatians, the Galatians were plagued by a problem, isn't these Judaizers who were Jews who were trying to merge the new Christianity with the observance of the Old Testament law, were following along behind Paul, and they were saying basically that all those things that Paul said were fine and good, and it's great that you trust Jesus as a Messiah, but that's not really enough. You need to have the second blessing, and that only comes when you have circumcision, and you follow the Mosaic Law, basically. It's just an early form of the same kind of uh, theology that you pick up down through the ages. The current manifestation is in the charismatic Pentecostal camp, but man always tries to add something to the grace of God, to help God out, some type of synergistic work that God may start the process, but gosh, we just need to help him out. And if we don't help him out in the process of salvation, then at least we help him out in the process of maintaining our salvation. And so Paul really had to deal with all of these false ideas and false teachings that these Judaizers were 
communicating to the Galatians. And so he has an extensive discussion of the purpose for the law. And in the middle of that, in the middle of right, almost right smack in the middle of Galatians 3, he talks about this purpose and he says in Galatians 3.24, Therefore the law was our tutor. And the word there is a pedagogue. And in Greek culture, a family, usually a wealthy family, would hire a tutor who was a slave, but his goal was to discipline and to instill discipline and rigor into a young child and to teach him everything he needed to learn in order to be able to function effectively when he became an adult. And once he reached his uh, the proper age, then he assumed the responsibilities of adulthood and he was no longer restricted by the more uh, rigorous uh, rules and regulations set down by the pedagogue. And so Paul uses that as a point of comparison to understand the role of the Mosaic Law in history. And in this, it, there's a behind this lies an, an approach to the history of mankind and man's understanding of God's revelation of himself and salvation that pictures man in the Old Testament dispensations as being like a child. And he's like a child because he has insufficient revelation and an inadequate understanding and because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit and all these other factors that come in in that dispensation. So Paul says the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that ultimately that is a purpose of the law is to direct the attention of people to Christ so that in the law they see the need for Christ, they understand that they're a sinner, and more specifically within the law, the ceremonial law, all the rules and regulations related to temple worship, tabernacle worship, the sacrifices and offerings, that all these elements ultimately point to some aspect of the person and work of Christ. And so he says the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. And the idea is that once we get to a point in Revelation, truly, in terms of the accumulation of doctrine, faith here is used not just in terms of of trusting, but it's used in the sense of what we trust, that body of knowledge that we have, We're no longer under a tutor for Christ, as Paul says in Romans 10, is the end of the law. Now, that doesn't mean we throw out the Old Testament. And it's really sad because there have been so many great and wonderful Bible teachers. But somehow along the line, people got this idea that you don't really need to know the Old Testament. And that somehow the Old Testament just pertains to Jews and the Old Testament just pertains to uh, the Old Testament dispensation, but it doesn't really unpack the mystery doctrines of the church age, and it doesn't really deal with all the doctrines God revealed to the Apostle Paul. So let's just spend all of our time studying Pauline epistles. And I could name you a dozen Bible teachers, and that's all they did. They never taught the Gospels. They never taught uh, anything in the Old Testament, never taught Proverbs, never taught Genesis, They just focused everything on teaching the Pauline epistles and Hebrews primarily, and every now and then they might step out of that. But Paul was viewed by many dispensationalists as being the one who has the greatest grasp on the the Christian life for today, so that's all we're going to study. And yet you can't understand Paul, as you well know, unless you understand the Old Testament background, that there's a context for everything. And when you get it, especially into the book of Hebrews, as we've seen, you just can't understand what the writer of Hebrews is trying to communicate to these former Levitical priests who are now believers because he, the writer of Hebrews uses so much language and he refers to so many scriptures that come out of the Old Testament and weaves them together to encourage them, help them understand all the just tremendous things that we have in Christ as our high priest. But you can't even understand the concept of what a high priest is if you don't understand what's going on back in Leviticus and back in Exodus. And we've come in our study in Hebrews 9, 1 to, and 9, 1 through 4 to an overview of the tabernacle. And last week, the last lesson, we took our time, and I walked down here and 
looked, did an overview of all the different pieces of furniture that are in the tabernacle, and we looked at that, and we talked about their general basic function. And starting this week, I want to start zeroing in a little more on all of the details that we have in the tabernacle. And so we're going to look at its construction. We're going to look at uh, all the different materials that are used. We're going to look at its dimensions. We're going to look at uh, each piece of furniture in detail, what it was used for. When we come first, of course, the first major piece of furniture we will come to is the brazen altar. I'm not going to take it in the order it's revealed in Scripture because in Scripture it starts with the Ark of the Covenant in the middle and works out. But we're going to take it from the perspective of the of the Jewish worshiper who is coming to the tabernacle and what he would see for the first time and what he uh, sees as he goes in. So we're going to take it from the outside, outside in. And we'll probably spend five or six weeks going through all of this, these different things and then connecting them to what's going on in, in the New Testament. And when we look at the brazen altar, for example, what goes on at the brazen altar? Well, you have all the different uh, burnt, you have the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and all the different offerings and sacrifices that are given that are described in the first seven chapters of uh, Leviticus. So we're, we'll go through those to try to understand what they are saying about uh, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to just step back, just do have our little overview picture here of the uh, layout of the tabernacle. And we're going to go through each one of these things to see how it communicates to us. Because even though, even though the tabernacle and the sacrifices and offerings and all of the ritual were designed for the Jews during the Old Testament period, all of these things pictured something about the person and the work of Christ. And so, as Paul says, this, the law was designed to be a tutor to bring us to Christ. As we study these things, the focal point is Christ in the tabernacle. And it will give us perhaps a little more uh, in-depth understanding of just what all of this is about and how it teaches us about what Christ did on the cross. So we're going to start with 11 reasons why it's important to study the tabernacle. First reason, the tabernacle depicts a variety of aspects of God's redemptive program which is progressively revealed through the Scripture. And this is one of those concepts that a lot of folks don't understand when they begin to read the Bible, is God reveals things to, of himself incrementally, and he reveals things about sin incrementally and about the solution for sin incrementally. And if you think about the problem of sin, when Adam and Eve were in the garden, and he first warned them that there was a penalty, that if they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. And he doesn't really spell out what that death is. And actually, it's not till you get into some things in the New Testament that you begin to understand that it's not a physical death, it's a spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1 says that you were born dead in your trespasses and sins. But if we're dead, we're also alive. So we have to understand there's different categories of death there. But we don't really unpack that nuance until there's more revelation. And when Adam ate, he didn't die instantly, so what do you think they thought? Hmm, maybe we're not going to die. And then God shows up walking in the garden, and they run and hide, and they, they know that something's, something's not right. And then after God meets with them, he explains all the different consequences of sin, and then he clothes them. And in that act of clothing them, he clothes them with animal skins, which means he has to show them how to take an animal, and I'm sure that he took a lamb, and he shows them how to cut its throat, and that must have been quite a sight for them because they, they may have been 20, 30 years in the garden, and they've never seen death. And now they see this animal die, and they've got to learn to kill the animal. They have to uh, learn how to skin the animal, how to treat the skin so that they can uh, use it so it'll be nice and soft and supple and they can work with it and they can use it to make clothes. And God has to teach them all of that. Of course, the verse just says that he um, 
clothe them with animal skins, but in order to do that, all of these other things have to be done. They're all in the background of that particular verse. And in that, he probably taught them about sacrifices, why it was necessary, and the impact of sin. So they have their own little Bible class there. And then we have in Genesis chapter 4, the episode with Cain and Abel, and uh, Abel brings the right sacrifice, and Cain brings the wrong sacrifice. And then the next time we really see an emphasis on sacrifice is when Noah gets off the ark. When Noah gets off the ark, he's taken seven of every clean animal on the ark, which means that there's an extra one uh, for sacrifice. And he builds these altars when he gets off the ark, and he sacrifices uh, these animals there as God and God uh, makes a covenant with him. And then we get to Abraham, and we see that Abraham somehow has a more finer understanding of altars and sacrifices, and he's doing more. We're not given any more explanation, but we see that he, when he goes places, he builds an altar, and he prays to God, and there's a sacrifice, and he dedicates the area to God as he moves through the land that God has promised him. So we work our way through Genesis and we understand that there's there's patriarchal sacrifice of patriarchal priesthood, the Melchizedekian priesthood. And then we come to Exodus, and God calls out his people from slavery in Egypt, and he redeems them nationally as he brings them out through the Red Sea into the wilderness to, uh, to Mount Sinai, where he gives them the law. And in the law now, he is going to give them a much more intricate sacrificial system and a much more intricate understanding of what are the different manifestations of sin and the consequences of sin. So it's, it's progressive. And then when Jesus shows up, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And any Jew who had any understanding has been properly prepared by all of the ritual to immediately understand who the Lamb of God must be and what its function is within the ritual system. And then after that, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that Christ is our Passover. So you see how things unfold progressively down through, down through the, the ages and down through the dispensation. So the tabernacle is designed by God to depict a variety of aspects of what Christ is going to do on the cross. We can understand redemption. We understand atonement. We understand covering and cleansing. We understand the need for a substitutionary atonement. We understand different sacrifices related to salvation and other sacrifices related to ongoing fellowship with God. All of these different things are there as part of God's plan of redemption, and they are pictured in very graphic ways. Second thing we learn from the tabernacle is it teaches about the sinfulness of sin. Because every time you read about the tabernacle and you read about the ritual laws and the the laws of of the dietary laws, and you get over into Leviticus and Numbers and you read about all the different things that can make a person ceremonially unclean, if you stop and think about it and read through it sometime, and we'll take a little time to go through some of these, you wonder how could a person really go through the day without doing at least a half a dozen things that would render him ceremonially unclean. And see, what God is teaching is the pervasiveness of sin and that if all these different things can make you unclean where you can't come in the presence of God, that's designed to teach you how, teach people how pervasive sin is in our lives and to get us to pay a little more attention to how much sin there really is and what has to be done in order to solve the sin problem. And we, you know, we live a rather antiseptic life because I doubt that anybody here has ever uh, some of you men have probably been out hunting. Maybe some of you ladies have. I know we have at least one lady here who's rather dangerous and has threatened the uh, you know, numerous herds of exotic animals around the world. But um, most people haven't ever killed an animal. They have never slit the throat of an animal and watched the blood leak out as those last heart, the last beatings of the heart. They've never hung an animal up. They've never skinned an animal or butchered an animal or gone through any of those those processes. And so it seems somewhat antiseptic to us and somewhat academic to just talk about about sacrifice. Now, we talked some week, two weeks ago in the King series on 
just how many sacrifices, how much blood there was and how, how much meat and how much uh, intestinal sludge there was when Solomon dedicated the temple and sacrificed 120,000 sheep and uh, 20,000 or so bullocks and what was involved there. And this is very, very messy. But to realize that every time you committed a sin or infraction of the ceremonial law, you have to go to the tabernacle, and before you can worship God, you have to bring an an offering, depending on how much money you have. There would be various things that you could bring from a lamb to a a calf to uh, just a, a bird. If you were very poor, you couldn't afford a lamb or a or calf, and it reinforces the idea that every time I do something, something has to die. Every time I break God's law, something has to something has to has to die, and we have to go through this whole process every single time. What that reinforces for us is how horrible sin is and what it does. So the tabernacle teaches about the sinfulness of sin and how it permeates everything. And one of the things within the ritual law has to do with leaven. And there's the feast of unleavened bread that's a week long that occurs at the beginning of the uh, Jewish ceremonial calendar at the spring at the same time that, uh, that you have Passover. And one of the things that's taught there is to remove all the leaven from the house because leaven just a little bit of leaven can permeate an entire lump of dough. Leaven is different from yeast. It's similar, but it's, it's, it's different. And it just permeates everything in the same way that yeast does. And so it shows how a little bit of sin can just infect and hurt everything. And, and so that's another very visual lesson. Third thing the tabernacle does is it depicts aspects of the person of Christ. We look at all the furniture, it's made with acacia wood, and then it's overlaid with pure gold. And all of this is to depict the hypostatic union, that Jesus Christ is true humanity represented by the wood, and he is undiminished deity represented by, by the pure gold. And if we look at the tremendous amount of, of gold and silver and brass that's used in the tabernacle, it's, uh, it's a little over a ton. When you, when you add it all up, it's, it's, it's quite a bit. But all of this is designed to teach certain things about who Jesus Christ is, that the sacrifices taught different dimensions to his, to his person. And fourth, the tabernacle depicts aspects of the work of Christ. And about the most important it has to do with the fact that it's substitutionary. It's amazing when you think about what the scriptures do in the Old Testament to prepare Israel for a Messiah who will be a substitute. We look at Isaiah chapter 53 uh, in light of all the sacrifices. And then we get into the early church. And for those of you who've been uh, in the uh, history of doctrine class on Monday night, we realized, we went through and realized that nobody has a really clear articulation of the atonement until the early 11th century, about 1,000, when Anselm comes along and he writes a theological treatise called Cur Deus Homo, Why the God-Man. And that's the first really clear development of, uh, such, of the fact that the atonement is substitutionary. Now, that idea is there in a rather naive or generic form going all the way back to the, uh, going all the, way back to the early church fathers. But it's never really explained. They talk about, well, Jesus died for us, but they never tell you what that means or what they mean by it. And then not long after Anselm, and I mean within 20 or 30 years, you have Abelard that came along. And Abelard has this idea of the atonement that, well, it wasn't substitutionary at all. This idea that, that Christ would, would have to bear the penalty of other people, well, that's a rather primitive concept. It's a, what he is doing is demonstrating uh, the satisfaction of God's, uh, God's morality, God's righteousness. Well, it's not really a propitiation idea. It's more just a moral example that we are to follow. And that's not at all what the Scripture teaches. They, they, when you go back and use that Old Testament example of the lamb and of somebody bringing the lamb and putting their hand on the lamb's head and then reciting their sins, 
It's a very clear picture of substitution. And then they cut the lamb's throat and put that, and then the lamb dies. That's a clear picture of substitution, but they just get away from that. And so Anselm introduces this uh, moral example view of the atonement. And then you go through another two or three hundred years, and you have these different competing ideas in the Roman Catholic Church, and then you go into the uh, Reformation Church. The main idea in the Reformation Church is it's a substitutionary atonement for about a hundred years. And then there's a guy that shows up in, in Holland by the name of Hugo Grotius, and Grotius says, well, it's not quite the moral example of, of Abelard. It's more the idea that God is going to, he really hates sin, and so he's going to exact punishment to show how much God hates sin, to show God's righteous judgment uh, of sin. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. It's just a picture for us of, of how much God hates sin and to thus motivate us not to sin. But, of course, the problem with both the Abelardian view of the atonement and the um, uh, Grotian view of the atonement is that some sins really aren't paid for. Nothing is actually paid for. And so under both of those systems, if people commit certain sins and do certain things, then they just can't get to heaven and there's no redemption. And it also impacts your understanding of sin because sin isn't so bad that somebody has to pay the penalty for it. You're not really spiritually dead. You're just spiritually weak. And so these ideas really infect and impact the way people think down through down through the, the centuries. And Grotius's view affected an evangelist in the early part of the 1800s named Charles Grandison Finney. And Finney's always thought by most evangelicals to be this great evangelist, and he wasn't because he didn't believe people were born spiritually dead. He didn't believe in a substitutionary atonement, so nobody was really saved. And he, I doubt that he was saved on that basis. But this permeates evangelical, starts to permeate evangelicalism in the 19th century all the way down to the present. And on, on Monday night, I read a little uh, newspaper article that uh, Connie had found and sent out that was dealing with this guy, uh, McLaren, who is the, one of the leading figures in the emergent church movement. And he's teaching a workshop up at Willow Creek, which is the flagship of the church growth movement up in Chicago. And he's talking about the fact that that Jesus just died. Uh, it's, it's, it's like the, the Chinese revolutionary, Chinese students in Tiananmen Square, just to demonstrate the injustice of it all. Well, see, once you understand the Grodian view of the atonement and the Anselmic view of the atonement and the, and the uh, Abelardian view of the atonement, you realize that this guy doesn't believe in substitutionary atonement at all. Therefore, he's got a crummy view of sin and he's got a poor view of salvation and he doesn't even think that Jesus is coming back, or we don't need to t- worry so much about how Jesus is coming back or when he comes back. And, and yet this is what is steamrolling, I mean, truly just steamrolling evangelicalism today coming out of this emergent church stuff. But if you stick with the tabernacle and the pictures of the Old Testament, you really understand what is going on when Jesus is hanging there on the cross and it starts getting dark and God is putting our sins on because you've got that understanding from the Old Testament. Fifth thing, well, there you go. See, I went in and I added a couple of points and got things misnumbered. So this is actually, so from this point on, those are four plus one, five plus one, okay? This is the fifth point. The tabernacle shows how a righteous God can solve the problems of sin. This is a question that so many people have, is how, how can God really do that? How can God save somebody like Adolf Hitler or Saddam Hussein or Jeffrey Dahmer? Well, we see it depicted in the sacrificial system of the tabernacle. So it shows how a righteous God can have his character satisfied by a substitutionary sacrifice. Sixth point. The priestly ministry in the tabernacle reveals how sinful people can approach a holy God with acceptable worship. What do they have to do? They have to, when they come into the tabernacle, he has to wash, the priest had to wash his hands and wash his feet. It's a picture of cleansing. And even though at the, at the initiation point of the priest's ministry, he's washed from head to toe, which pictures salvation and the positional cleansing that we have in Christ, 
which is a legal cleansing. I had a conversation today with an old friend of mine who is a lawyer now, and he has started a little home church in his in his uh, home. lives up in um, uh, Navasota. He's a lawyer up there, and he was a camper of mine years ago at, at Camp Penile. And he's got this little home church, and he's a lawyer up there, and he's teaching the Bible and having a great impact on uh, all about 20 or so people that are coming to his house every Sunday morning. And so we were talking about what he was going to teach this Sunday. And I was going through some things, and I said, well, you know, what this really pictures here is positional truth. I said, now, a lot of people have a hard time understanding positional truth because positional truth is this abstract concept, and people need a concrete image of it. And that's what baptism does. Water baptism is what we're talking about, and that's a picture of the abstract realities that occur at the instant of salvation in terms of our being identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. I said, that's positional truth. He says, that's an easy concept. I deal with that every day in the, law, in the, in the, uh, in the courtroom. So anybody who goes into a courtroom has a legal standing before the judge in the courtroom. That is your position in the law, and that is positional truth. I thought, wow, I never thought of positional truth as a courtroom concept. And it's just one of those other things that reinforces the idea that I always talk about is that, that we have justification and forgiveness. All these concepts are legal. Everything that God does is within this courtroom framework. So God has a way of cleansing us experientially as well as positionally. Positionally relates to our legal standing before God in relation to justification, and ongoing cleansing has to do with the ongoing cleansing of sin based on that positional reality. So the sixth point, I got caught up, right? Or seventh point, seventh point. The priestly ministry in the, in the tabernacle teaches the necessity of being cleansed of sin before serving, worshiping, or learning about God. It's just something that they had to do day in and day out. And I can hear somebody now saying, well, that just seems so mechanical. First time I went up to, um, when I first went up to Preston City and I was teaching, I'd been there maybe about six months. There was a lady and I won't explain who she is because then some people would know who she was. And um, she wasn't from Houston. She was from another part of the state. And she said, well, I want to hear some of your tapes. So I sent her some stuff. And she said, oh, you do that stuff that, that you just have to have confession every time you have Bible class. She said, that's so mechanical. I said, well, let me explain why that's done. Is that when you're teaching somebody anything, whether you're teaching them music, whether you're teaching them athletics, baseball, football, hockey, whatever it is, whether you're teaching, teaching dance, whatever it is that you're teaching, when you're initially teaching anybody anything, you go through the mechanics. And the mechanics are frequently very uncomfortable. And people don't just naturally take to those mechanics. You take somebody who's taking dance, and they, they're taking ballet, and they're four years old or five years old, and they have to stand a certain way, and they have to hold their feet a certain way that would break my legs, and they have to, you know, stand up on their toes and do all this. It's not natural. It's not normal. We don't normally do that. But they have to learn, and if and after they practice it and do it over and over again, then it becomes natural. I remember when I was, I don't know, I was about seven when I started taking piano lessons. Same kind of thing. I had to hold my fingers a certain way, and I couldn't do this, and I couldn't do that. But uh, you don't let your hands go flat, and you just have to learn the mechanics. And then you'd have to play technique exercises, which was boring because that had no tune to it whatsoever. But you have to do these mechanical things so that eventually, when you're playing a song, you, you've mastered the skills so that you can produce something that has beauty and it has art to it. Same thing in football. You go out and a guy tries out for a football team in junior high. You've got to go to two-a-day practices. You've got to learn how to bend over, how to hit the blocking dummy, and all these kinds of things that you have to do to learn the basic mechanics, and you have to practice them over and over and over and over again so that people learn what they're supposed to do and how to do it. And once you practice it and it becomes a skill, it's something that's embedded in your lifestyle. 
But the reason I always start by going through confession is you teaching it by example, and it's not a mechanical process. Teaching mechanics isn't mechanical. So people often misunderstand that. So, and that's what they did in the Old Testament. Every time they went in, day in, day out, you always have these priests washing their hands, washing their feet. How mechanical. But it was to teach the principle that before you can come into the presence of God, serve God, worship him, uh, do what he said to do, sacrifice, you've got to be in right relationship with him. Eighth point. Remember the numbers of us, those of you who just signed on, I know there are some people who come in 30 minutes late. And I know who you are, too. Okay, the priesthood is foundational to an understanding of Christ's priestly ministry because the patterns that we see in Hebrews that talk about the priesthood and the high priesthood help us to come out of the Old Testament Aaronic priesthood. And even though Jesus has a Melchizedekian priesthood, the concept, uh, the pictures in the Old Testament help us understand that the role of the priest especially when you see him on the Day of Atonement, bringing in the blood, putting it on the mercy seat, that that is a picture of what Christ did as our high priest. Ninth point, understanding the role of Israel's priesthood enables Christians to understand their own role as believer priests. We're currently believer priests in the church age, but when we are raptured, resurrected, rewarded believers that return with Jesus at the second coming, we're going to rule and reign with him as priest kings under his high priestly ministry in the millennial kingdom. And we're going through a training ground now, a training stage in in our time in, in history, in our time on the earth, in preparation for what's going to happen in the future, so that we're living today in light of eternity, or should be. And the more we come to understand what Israel's priesthood was doing and why they were doing it, the more it helps us to understand who and what we are as believer priests and who and what we will be when we are priest kings ruling with Christ in the millennial kingdom. Tenth point. The sacrificial system within the tabernacle teaches the great importance God placed on the need for a blood sacrifice to to atone for sin, that it had to be death. It it does demonstrate how much God hates sin. You know, Grotius got it partway right. God hates sin. But he had such a low view of sin that that what Christ did on the cross isn't doing anything for anybody else. But that that was not what was initially taught in the tabernacle uh, system of sacrifices. Then we come to point number 11. The Levitical sacrifices give, the sacrifices give Christians a greater understanding of God's view of the various degrees of sin in the Old Testament, that there are different sacrifices for different sins. There are sins of omission and sins of commission that God treats, even though the ultimate penalty for sin is death, in terms of experiential penalties, there are differences because the consequences, the results of different personal sins vary. And then we come to our twelfth point. A good grasp of the tabernacle is necessary to understand more than half of the book of Hebrews. If you don't understand what's going on with the Levitical priesthood, if you don't understand all the different uh, offerings and sacrifices, and if we don't understand the nature of the high priestly ministry as a substitutionary ministry, then we can't grasp the basic message of Hebrews. Everything in Hebrews is built and assumes that the readers understand Exodus and Leviticus and the whole a sacrificial system of the Old Testament. So this is why it's important to study the Old Testament and to study the tabernacle. So we get into the tabernacle, and just by way of uh, continued introduction, I have five points I want to try to cover tonight. And the first has to do with nomenclature. The nomenclature helps us to understand the nature of the tabernacle. Why is it called what it's called? With God, God just doesn't name things to name things. There's a connection between its name and its its inherent reality. 
It's called a sacred residence, a sanctuary, a holy place, and all of these derive from the, ba- the word to be holy, both the verb and the noun, which means a place that is set apart. All these different words that we have in English, sacred, sanctuary, holy, all come out of Latin words that translate the Greek and Hebrew words. These names are given to us in the next chart, which somehow managed to lose the Hebrew part of it, but you can figure it out anyway. The first word is mikdash, which is from the Hebrew word kadash. It has an M in front of it, which is related to the formation of the noun, and it means a holy place. It emphasizes that this is a place of distinction, a place that's been set apart. Then a second word that is used is the verb shakan. Now, turn with me, while we're here, turn with me back to Exodus 25, verse 8. Exodus 25, by the way, I just noticed we got that vibration back up here. It's not as bad as it was Sunday morning, but it's revisiting us. Uh, Exodus 25.8, God says, And let them make me a sanctuary, that's the word mikdash, let, me make, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And the word there for dwelling is the Hebrew verb shakan, which is, comes into Greek as skene, and is where we get the word, the shakan is where we get the word shekinah meaning the dwelling or the indwelling, uh, the dwelling of God. So these are the first two words. And then a third word that's used is the word ha-mishkan. So we had mikdash from kadash, and now we have another noun formed on shakan, ha-mishkan, which means the dwelling place. So we, these are the two words that are used as synonyms for the a tabernacle, Mikdash emphasizes that it is a distinct and a unique place that is set apart to the service of God, and Hamishkan indicates that it is the place where God dwells, where we have the localized presence of God on earth, that he who is infinite has taken up a dwelling place on the earth. Another term that is used frequently in the Old Testament is the term the tent. It occurs 19 times, just as the tent. And it's also found in various other expressions as the tent of the testimony, because you have the testimony of the law that resides there in Numbers 9.15. The tent of the Lord, because the Lord dwells there, 1 Kings 2.28-30. The house of the tent, 1 Chronicles 9.23. And the tent of meeting, because this is where Moses would go to meet, meet God. That's used over 130 times, uh, in Exodus, as, such as in Exodus 33.7. Uh, so the tent is a key reference for this, and this indicates its temporary nature. The tabernacle was the, uh, was the mobile home that God lived in before he got a permanent house. Then we come to the third point in Exodus 25.9, where we have the word ha-mishkan again. It indicates the entire tabernacle, not simply the, inner, the holy place itself, including the holy place and the holy of holies, but it also included the outer court inside of the, of the hangings. But in Exodus 26.1, it refers only to the tabernacle proper, which is the holy place and the holy of holies. And in the Greek, in the New Testament, we find that the writers use two different words to describe uh, the tabernacle or the temple. They use one word to describe the inner holy place, and they use another word to describe the, the entire temple structure. And it's that word that describes only the inner part that is a word that's used in 1 Corinthians 3.16 when Paul says that don't you know that your, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not talking about the outer precincts where anybody could go, but only the inner precinct which has been set apart, sanctified positionally and is the place where the pre-incarnate Christ dwelt in the Old Testament. 
Exodus 25.9 says, According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of its furnishing, just so you shall make it. So God shows to Moses a pattern, a model that he built it on. Now, when we get into Hebrews, it seems that there is a heavenly tabernacle that the earthly tabernacle is patterned on. We run into several other phrases that are used based on the word tabernacle. In the Old Testament, we have the phrase tabernacle of the Lord in Joshua 22.19 and 1 Kings 2.28 and 1 Chronicles 16.39, indicating that it is Yahweh who dwells in the tabernacle. It's also called the tabernacle of testimony or witness in Exodus 38.21, Numbers 150. 17, 7, and 8, Second Chronicles 24, 6, and Acts 7, 44, emphasizing the presence of the Mosaic law there. Tabernacle of the congregation, because this is where the congregation would come in order to have fellowship with God and worship God, Exodus 27, 21, 33, 7, and 40, 26. All of these terms involve the word tabernacle or some, tabernacle of something, which indicates uh, a different aspect of its of its function. The fourth is the tabernacle of Shiloh. Shiloh is a title for Jesus. Psalm seventy-eight sixty. Then we have fifth. It's called the tabernacle of Joseph in Psalm seventy-eight sixty-seven. It's called the Temple of the Lord, 1 Samuel 1, 9 and 3, 3. Remember, they don't have, when Samuel is, is a young boy, there's, it's still the temp, tabernacle, but it's called the Temple of the Lord in those passages. And the House of the Lord in Joshua 6, 24, 1 Samuel 1, 7 and 24. So all of these give us different designations for the tabernacle. Now, God comes along. And he reveals to Moses that he is to build a tabernacle. And the key passages to understand this, there's a lot of repetition in this part of Exodus. I would never want to teach Exodus verse by verse because you have the God revealing it and then them building it and then it describes it a third time when they finish it. So it's a, a lot of repetition. But it just shows the, the, the detail that's there and the historical accuracy. In chapter 25, the focus is on the basic elements, the basic furniture within the tabernacle. It starts off in the first nine verses, just to kind of give you an, a structure for these verses. In, in Exodus chapter 25, God explains the need for the tabernacle and gives uh, Moses an introduction and plan for starting the tabernacle, and he says that he's to take up an offering, verse 2, in order to, this was the first real building plan in history, and it's based on free will offering. And it wasn't based on a mandated tithe, but a free will offering, and the material that they had was material that they had taken from the Egyptians that they were given by their Egyptians masters as the as almost as if the Egyptians were bribing them to leave because they were tired of the judgments of God from the plagues. And so they gave them gold and they gave them silver and they gave them clock, all kinds of costly material. And so from this they were to bring the this material the gold, the silver, the bronze, the uh, material that they had and to bring this and so that it could be used in the construction of the tabernacle. And so we see these elements here. This is the offering which you shall take from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread. We'll look at that because the colors are significant. It's not, it's not just because God liked vibrant colors. But the inter one of the interesting things is, is that people didn't normally dress because these were very expensive dyes to produce the blue and the purple dyes and the scarlet dye, that only the very wealthy, only kings usually, only royalty had clothes clothes that were in these dyes. And when you look at the, the high priest, Aaron was showing up in a $10,000 custom-made suit. I mean, he was, he was dressing well, and it was impressive. 
And when you came and looked at the ark, because most people just dressed in the same basic, basic colors, when you looked at the ark and there's all this blue and the purple and the red, it was, it was like going from black and white TV to color TV. Some of you can't quite remember that. I don't know what the analogy. Some of you are too young to, to even know that there was a time without color TV, but that's what it was like. It was like going from, from Eastern Europe or Russia in 1980 or in the early 90s when the wall first came down, and then coming back to the West, it was like suddenly your eyes were returned to technicolor. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, it just it was so impressive to see the, the tabernacle. And in our culture where we have so many different colors and, and we get bored with the colors this year, so all the designers come out with a new set of colors next year, and everybody's got to wear all the latest colors and all the latest fads, and next year it's something else. We, we just can't quite grasp how phenomenal this was to see all this color. And it just blew them away. But it wasn't just for that purpose. It was, it had other signification as well. And then they brought various skins for the coverings over the ark. Ram skins that were dyed red and badger skins. If you're using a King James or New King James, it says badger skins. If you're using a New American Standard, it says dolphin skins. And I think that maybe some other versions use different things. Actually, nobody's sure what this word refers to. There's some guesses based on cognate languages that it's some kind of, probably some kind of a, a dolphin uh, sea creature. But we're not sure exactly, uh, exactly what it was. And they were to bring oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and incense and onyx stones and stones to be put in the ephod and the breastplate. And God says, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So there, he gives these initial instructions in how to get the material and what to build it from and to lay it out. And then starting in 2510, he begins to describe the different pieces of furniture that will be in the ark. And in 2510 to 16, he describes the ark of the covenant. Then we come out from the Holy of Holies to the holy place, and he describes the table of showbread, then the golden lampstand, and then he uh, describes the, uh, gets into verse 26, and he describes the six different layers of curtains or, that are going to be there, rather the, um, four different layers of curtains that are there, the first layer is described in um, yeah, first layer is described in 26 one through six. It's it's a linen that is dyed scarlet, blue, and purple again. And then there are cherubs, the images of cherubs embroidered into the linen. But the people on the outside won't see that. You only see it on the inside as you look up. And this is what the priests would see on the inside is this blue, purple, and red fabric with the cherubs embroidered in it. And so he's looking up and he's seeing the cherubs, and part of the purpose of the cherubs relate to the holiness of God. Then in 26, 7 to 10, it describes a second curtain made of goat's hair. So this is a rugged uh, uh, fabric that will protect the linen that's underneath. Then on top of that, you have the ramskins dyed red, and ramskins dyed red is a picture of atonement, something covered in blood. And then on the outside, it's covered with porpoise skins or badger skins or whatever it was, but that was designed to provide a waterproof, watertight covering on the outside of the tabernacle. Then in 26.15 to 30, there's intricate details about the boards and the sockets, and you have some sockets of gold, some of silver, some of bronze. And then in 2631 to 35, it describes the inner curtains of the tabernacle, the inner veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place, and then the outer, the outer screen in 2636 to 37. Then it goes out and talks about the brazen altar in 27, 1 through 8, and in 27, 9 through 19, we get into the outer courtyard and the hangings that, and the, that surrounded the courtyard, which would keep people out of the outer courtyard. And as we get to that, 
once again, the, the hangings are made of fine woven linen. This was a very uh, prized linen that was made uh, out of Egyptian flax. And again, it was very expensive, and only the wealthiest of people, and usually only royalty and aristocracy, had access to this kind of linen. And so there'd be hangings from the court of fine woven linen, a hundred and cubits long for one side, and it describes all of the details there. And then it describes the uh, colors that are woven into these various various hangings. And we keep, as we go through this, and we get down to the garments of the priesthood in chapter 28, and it begins to describe all of the um, uniform for the priest, his his coverings, his ephod, the breastplate, uh, all of these different things. One of the things that we continue to run into is that these colors, same colors, keep showing up again and again and again. And that tells us that there must be some sort of significance uh, for these for these colors. Now, there's one that's it's usually translated blue, at least in the King James it's translated blue. Some, tra- some translations translate it purple, but it's more of a bluish purple. And this is a bluish purple that was used to dye many wool garments. Uh, it was an expensive dye that was, uh, came from the crushing of certain species of shellfish. And as they crushed these mollusks, mollusks, they would take the secretions, and then from that they would create these dyes. And so they would use the Papura lapillus from the Atlantic Ocean was the one that came and was used for this bluish-purple dye. And then there was a second one from the Murex snail, that was also known as the fiery horn snail or the Turk's blood snail, and it produced more of a reddish purple that came out. And the, the dyes were not always exact in the ancient world. Often you had families who were, that was their, uh, that was their uh, job, that was the, the family business, and they each family had their own recipe for making the different dyes. And so you would go to one family and their color purple would be a little bit different from the next one's color purple. It just depended on how they how they mixed the dyes. So you had one that was more of a bluish purple, one that was more of a red purple. And this one, the uh, argamon, is one that uh, is, was derived from also from the crushing of a mollusk. And it was uh, used to uh, develop this dye, which was typically used of royal purple, and so was considered to be uh, extremely rare and extremely expensive. And then you had a third dye that was used, a third color that's used here, and that's the color red. And there are two different words to describe two different reds. And one is the word that we see in some of these passages here, which is usually translated scarlet, and it tended to be a little bit more of an orangey red. And then there was a redder red that was used the word uh, tola, which is the word uh, sometimes translated crimson. And we see both of these words used synonymously in Isaiah 118, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, that's the first word, uh, shani, they shall be as white as snow, and though they are red like crimson, that's tola'ah, they shall be as wool. And so this is the, the red pictured death, it pictured blood, and of course this is a picture of the uh, atonement that was needed to cover sin. And then the red, reddish purple was the color of royalty, and this would speak of the uh, kingdom of God and the royalty of God as the king who ruled over Israel. And then the bluish purple would speak of heaven, and it would speak of the 
heavenly source of God, and the God's ultimate do- domain is the ruler from heaven. So that every time you looked at the tabernacle and saw these colors, they would be a reminder of something that was t- just totally different in the first place. In the second place, it spoke of these different uh, aspects, the royalty, the kingdom, the home of God in heaven, and then the need of bloodshed to cover sin. So that gives us a basic introduction to some of these elements, and next time we'll come back and start looking at the uh, basic structure of the temple and the furnishings, and we'll get into the uh, off, start getting into the uh, offerings and the sacrifices. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things, to be reminded of how you've had a consistent message throughout history that there is one and only one way to have salvation, that's by trusting you, and that you are the one who provides salvation, and it's on the basis of a blood sacrifice. And Jesus Christ is the one who died as a substitute for our sins, that by believing on him, we might have eternal life. We are trusting in the fact that his death is sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins, and it is our sins that separate us from you. Father, we thank you for what we are learning about your grace, your provision for us in the temple, in the tabernacle, what these things teach. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.